It just it worked just that easily. Yes, it's just that simple. Like the bassomatic. Oh, you know mm, that's no excellent bass. <laughs> Sorry, it's all right. It's you know, brain full of pop culture. It just leaks out. I know that's well. We're going to get into that. Uh, this is episode ten, ten or eleven. I think it might be, it might be eleven of. Uh, Good. Of, I hope I'm lucky. Eleven. That yeah, sounds you think great. so? Of, yeah. Of pals with Bill Wadman. And uh, I have Chris Malamphy here, uh, who is the uh, host of the Hit Parade podcast on right. Slate. Mm-hmm. Um, you consider yourself a chart analyst and pop critic. That's how you describe yourself. That's how I describe myself. Are, are, are you the first person to use that that designation? In the world of pop music, probably. Um, and usually when you're the, the subject of an interview, you don't want to come off as arrogant in the first minute, but I'll go ahead and sound slightly arrogant for a minute. I kind of invented this beat, at least as it, ex- in, as it now exists. Um, it's not as if there weren't chart analysts before in the music business world in the pages of Billboard magazine itself. That existed. Um, and it wasn't as if there weren't music critics who would write about the charts when it suited them or when it suited an angle on their story. But what I realized in the 2000s, basically when blogging became a thing, and especially when sort of aggregated blogging became a thing, so you were no longer just publishing your own little live journal or your own little blog, but, you know, Gawker came along and sort of revolutionized the idea of blogs being a form of journalism. Um, What I realized was that there was nobody who was analyzing the pop charts and understanding how they worked, but writing like a critic. So some of the legends in my field before me are people like Fred Bronson, who wrote the Billboard book of number one hits, or Joel Whitburn, who's sort of the granddaddy of chart tallying. He's the guy who, he even invented terms we take for granted in pop charts now, like peak, P-E-A-K, the idea that, you know, a song rises and falls and you want to know how high it got. It peaked at number nine. It peaked at number nine. We, I didn't realize this, but I I read in an interview, and this may be apocryphal, that he essentially invented the term of peak, uh, which we now all take for granted in charts. However, these guys, Joel Whitburn is mostly just kind of a data nerd. He likes collecting the data. Fred Bronson is uh, a fine writer and a wonderful journalist in the sense that he's interviewed countless, um, you know, musicians over the years for his Billboard book of number one hits, but neither one of them necessarily expressed much of an opinion, or if they did, it kind of leaked out, you know, in the corners of what they wrote. And then on the other hand, you know, what I was a geek for when I was a kid growing up in the 80s and 90s was I was obsessed with, you know, Rolling Stone and rock criticism, and these guys were heroes to me, these men and women. Um, And they would write about the charts if they had to, or as an addendum to what they were doing, but it was not the central focus of what they wrote. And I started having ideas for things I wanted to write in the 2000s that I couldn't think of where you would publish ideas like these. And it wasn't until blogging came along and um, there was finally a Gawker music blog called Idolater that I was showing up for and commenting on all the time. And eventually I commented so much. They said, how'd you like to write an article for us? And I said, sure. And then they said, how'd you like to be a guest editor for a day? And I said, sure. And I did that a couple of times. And then finally I said to the editors at Idolater, would you guys be interested in publishing? If I did a weekly thing where I was a little, you know, witty and snarky, but explained why things were becoming hits, would you, would you pay me for that? And they said, yeah, we'd pay you for that. We'd, we'd pay for it weekly. 
And so starting in 2007, I began writing a column for them that I invented called 100 and Single, in which I explained how things became hits, but I was doing it at a a level of depth that most critics would not write about and which if you opened up Billboard, Billboard kind of had to pull some punches sometimes about how how snarky they could be about anything because Billboard is the house organ, the Bible of the music industry. So you can't really say, well, this song that sucks is number one. And I could say, well, this song may be terrible, but let me explain to you why it's number one this week. And that's that's a confluence of where music is at the moment, where culture is at the moment, where politics are at the moment, what the weather's like, you know, all of that kind of stuff, right, ends up contributing to where things end up in the charts. Absolutely. I mean, just look in the last decade at the obsession. This this has grown in influence. Uh, we're recording this in the summer. It's August right now. Over the Song of the Summer. Song of the Summer is something that has t- absolutely taken off in the social media and internet age. Yeah, when, where did that come from? I did an article for Slate about four or five years ago where I tried to analyze where it came from because it's a little murky. It's not as if the term didn't exist dating back decades. You can turn up Nexus searches where you you find the term Song of the Summer dating back to at least the 70s, if not the 60s. Yeah. Um, I kind of marked it as unofficially starting with Summer in the City, the song by The Love and Spoonful, which sure. was a number one hit in the summer of 66. And there was some... And of course, everybody knows about the Summer of Love in 67, which was seen as both a cultural happening and a musical event in terms of Sgt. Pepper or Surrealistic Pillow by the Jefferson Airplane, et cetera. Um, But the idea that there is one song to rule them all every summer, that grew as years went on. I turned up uh, one example around 1979 of somebody saying, My Sharona by The Knack is the song of the summer. I turned up a... An example in the mid-80s where somebody said that Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer was the song of the summer of 86. Uh, And then it starts to grow and grow, and you start seeing it. In the 90s, you start seeing it cropping up in journalism more and more. But the idea that everybody would, in a participatory way, be taking part in speculating about it as a sport, that's really the last decade. I mean, that... Some have unofficially said that um, Rihanna's 2007 number one single, uh, Umbrella, helped kick off the idea of the Song of the Summer as a thing. It existed prior to that, but people really getting involved and and almost feeling like they had a voice and a vote. The closest example I give to it is um, since the early 70s, England has had an annual sweepstakes for the UK Christmas number one. Sure. Um, the extent to which the general public in the United Kingdom pay attention to this blows my mind. Like there are news headlines over what's going to be the Christmas number one. As immortalized in Love Actually. As immortalized in Love Actually. That's what I, I'm not an enormous fan of Love Actually, but I must say that plot of Love Actually was both brilliant and hilarious and (laughs) accurate, completely, completely accurate. Like, you know, uh, and frankly, who they're, to digress for a moment. The person they're basically satirizing in Love Actually is Cliff Richard. Cliff Richard, who's been around since the 50s, right? He was a teen idol in the 50s. Right. But he has had this bizarre staying power on the charts into the 21st century in England. He he only had one or two top 10 hits in America, but in England, he'll crop up. And then when he decides he he wants to be in the sweepstakes for, for the Christmas number one, he'll record some mawkish ballad and drop it, you know, on December 15th or whatever, you know, timed for the, the, the chart tally. It works sometimes. And it works sometimes. He's had song, he's had the Christmas number one at least twice, maybe three times. Yeah. When so, he runs out of money. I guess. I mean, Cliff Richard is probably fabulously wealthy by British standards. He probably doesn't need the money, but yeah. 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 But so but for you, it's interesting because there's the, there, some people get into music because they're musicians. 
Right. Some people get into music because they're music fans. Mm-hmm. Some people could get into music the way you look at it because they're like baseball fans who are obsessed with stats. Right. And and maybe there are others that I'm but I'm missing, but those are three easy ones, right? The analogy you just made that music is my sports is something I say all the time. Right. I say that to people. I'm sorry, did I interrupt no, your no, question? No, no, no. I will get we'll get back to it. Say what you're going to say. But no, I I the, the the analogy I make for people is the way a baseball fan is not only interested in whether their team won that day, but Back in the winter, they're paying attention to pitchers and catchers. Yep. They're watching exhibition games. They care about trading caps. Yep. That's the level at which I pay attention to pop music. And I try to be both dispassionate um, and analytical and also have a rooting interest. Uh, it's been interesting, frankly. I have found as I have grown this beat that I – helped create, right? I, I don't think I invented it from whole cloth if you date back to Joel Whitburn and Fred Bronson, but the sort of online version of it that I've helped create. Uh, the people who have come out of the woodwork is caring about my work. Um, everybody's got their own kind of rooting interest. Sure. Um, I find for reasons that I don't fully understand, but that I am charmed by that, um, gay men in particular are, are like chart freaks. Really? And it's, it's kind of like, it's their sport too. You know, particularly if you've had, I I happen to be straight, but if, if you were a nerdy kid or an outcast kid, or you were sort of, you know, not into typical guys, guy pursuits, um, something you could obsess about. It's, it's, it's numbers. It's, it's got all the boy hallmarks, right. Of, you know, caring about, you know, numbers and with none and of the testosterone with, with less of the testosterone. <laughs> I, I found that many of the people who are most passionate about my work are gay men. But, did, uh, but do you, did you get into it? Do you like listening to music? Yeah. Obsessively. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Are you, are you a, a, an omnivore when it comes to music? Yes. I, you know, it's funny. This is a very fraught thing because you'll you'll talk to people and they say oh i like everything and then the minute you start honing in on it well do you like country music oh no right, right, do, right you know right, and right. oh and, I, and very quickly you realize they don't really like everything and look i have my biases i'm a kid from brooklyn new york i didn't grow you know this this uh city did not have a country radio station for a period of decades so what i know about country music i've mostly picked up from reading billboard and observing and i like what i like but i know country probably least well among the major genres but even country, yeah, I like a good deal right. of country. Um, I feel fortunate that I did grow up in a polyglot city like New York, so I genuinely like R&B and hip-hop, um, and not just as an academic pursuit. Um, I, you know, am interested in pure pop. Um, I'm not a snob for pop music. In fact, I think the pop single is one of the hardest things to do well, and rather than regarding something as a so-called guilty pleasure, I... I revel in my pop pleasures. Yeah. So did you want to play? Did you play at all? When I was a kid, I played very briefly. I played viola for two years in grade school and I tried piano. I had, I was told by a music teacher that I had a good ear, but I've just never been very coordinated. Yeah. It's as simple as that. I'm, I'm as bad with an instrument. Can I say this categorically? I'm almost as bad with an instrument as I am on a, on a playing field. You know, like the yeah, fact that I can't yeah. really throw a football very well translates into I, my left hand on the piano is a mess, right. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it, 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 see, I, I have a somewhat musical background, right? My, my education's in music. Uh, my father owned record stores when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of the same ingredients as you, but come at it from a different angle in, in, in some ways, right? Sure. 
there are a lot of people who who will look at a critic and they'll say, oh, it's just, you know. Okay. He can't he can't play. Exactly. Ergo, he, talk, yeah, yeah, he writes yeah. about it. That sure. classic trope, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's fair to some extent. Yeah, th- there has to be some of that out there. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not terribly insulted by it because I, I – I know what I'm good at. It's funny. I'm a, I'm a frequent guest on Mike Pesca's uh, podcast, The Gist, uh, the Slate podcast. It's a daily podcast, and I've been on his show probably two to three dozen times. And for, for a time at the beginning, when he first started having me on, he called me a musicologist. And I had to correct him. I said, you better not call me that because I – what I know about music theory could fit in the thimble. I mean, yeah. I, I don't I don't pretend to be a musicologist. I know quite a bit. I took enough music in school that I I can't sight read, but I I understand the principles yeah, sure. uh, of harmony and you know the tonic and you know I, I I have the basics, but I don't pretend to analyze at that level, and I I have to be very careful about that. And that does sometimes make it hard. It means I am I am um, you know. I'm at a bit of a loss sometimes. I write a series for Slate called Why Is This Song Number One? Yep. And if if I were to try and analyze why something is number one at a root musicological level, my skills are crude. My skills are limited. Um, recently, uh, you know, because I write about number one hits, I've had to write about the pseudo-rapper Post Malone several times. I call him a pseudo-rapper because I actually think the guy wants to be a an acoustic bro singer songwriter rather than a rapper and he's kind of a, a you know sensitive acoustic bro in in rapper clothing but he's had two number one hits so i've had to write about him twice in the last nine months he had a hit last fall called Rockstar, and he, he had a hit this spring called psycho and i basically said i think fairly accurately that they're two sides of the same coin it's basically like he wrote rock rewrote Rockstar as psycho and one of the things i wanted to say in the article was if his first number one hit was a minor key reflection on the wages of fame, his new number one hit is a major key reflection on the wages of fame. And I'll admit, I had to Google that to make doubly sure. I checked a couple of music. That one was sites. minor. One was, one was minor key. and one was major. I, I have a pretty good ear. I think I know what a major key and a minor key are, but I want to, I've been wrong about that before. I think I'm hearing something because it's in, you know, D flat or whatever, well, yeah. or D, D minor move, rather. Yeah. There are musicians who can move around a minor key and make it sound not minor, you know, depending Precisely. on how the progression goes. And I've been wrong about that. And yeah. I don't, and I don't want to screw that up. Yeah. So, you know, just to give an example, that's where, my my talents are limited. Yeah, but do you think that there's a window on your? Uh, you start. You're uh, how old? Do you mind saying? Uh, no, not at all. I'm 46. I'll be 47 in about. Okay, a month. You're, you're 47, which means you got into this stuff mid 80s. Correct. Okay. Which, by the way, matters because man, the 80s were a great time for the pop charts. Well, th- I was going to get into that in a second. Yeah, sure. exactly. So let's say you start in the mid 80s, and obviously, over the years of doing research further back and and whatever, you have a certain level of knowledge of the charts of the 70s and 60s and, and the rest of it. Sure. But th- the heart of sort of the, the charts that you lived is 80s till today or whatever. Correct. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel like there is a time and, and uh, there's a lot of music that comes out today that I listen to and the classic thing of like, uh, it doesn't hit me, doesn't get me. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm left behind. Do you ever feel like that'll happen to you? Because you still feel like you really enjoy a lot of this new stuff that comes out that a lot of people our age, because you and I are kind of similar age, you're a few years older than me, right? W- would be dismissive of, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't mean to be dismissive. It just doesn't speak to me. No, you know? no. And I respect that. And I, I often say to people, for example, when I talk about hip hop, I can't make you like it, but 
we cannot in 2018 be still having the debate over whether or not rap is music. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. if you have not gotten that memo by now, I don't know what to do for you. Yeah. Like I, 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 I cannot believe I'm still having that debate occasionally with middle-aged white people. Like you have got to have that, that much down. You yeah. don't have to like it. I cannot make you yeah. like Drake. Yeah. I cannot make you like Kanye West, but you have to acknowledge it's music. Yeah. I was, uh, I was down in uh, Miami uh, with my wife for a conference she had. And I was doing my daily portrait series, which you and I met as part of last year. Right. And uh, I needed people down there. So I called a friend of mine. I said, you know, hey, do you know anybody down here that might be interesting? And he's like, you know, let me get back to you. It's like 10 minutes later. He goes, "Uh, I got you Jerobi White from Tribe Called Quest. Oh, my God. He's like. Tribe Called Quest are just about my favorite rap group. Right, okay. I mean, I. I I am not a big rap hip hop guy. Right. I, I mean. I've heard of a song or two. I don't know enough to be fluent in every single one of their records. Sure. And not only that, but the hip hop world, even more so than a lot of other things is its own little soap opera of, of who talks to who and who involves with who and what happened to so-and-so 20 years ago that they don't talk to each other, whatever it is. So I, 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 one of my roommates up at Berkeley college of music was a guy named Sean Sotero who does, uh, the, the, the cypher, I guess it's, is that the one Mm, that he does? Yes. The hip hop podcast. So I called him up. I was like, Hey, Sean, you got to tell me I'm in the car down to meet Jerobi. I said, you need to tell me everything I need to know <laughs> about, about Jerobi. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and he did. he's like, let me go find an empty room. You know, and he like schooled me for 15, 20 minutes. Right. But that's so that you could get through. Yeah. Just so I get could over, not say the say. wrong thing. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and we had a great time. He and I are like, you know, Jerobi and I are like, we're tight. You I'm know, sure like, if you came at fun. him with just respect and curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. He would, he would respond to that. And he was a sweetheart and I was vouched for. And, you know, he like, you know, I've got his phone number in my phone. Like we're, 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 you know, we're, we're chill. Level. But it's not my world, sure. you know, that, that, that he's living in. So do you feel like you're ever going to hit a wall? And when yeah. do you think that will be? Yeah, no, you're, you're asking a good question. Okay. So there are a number of ways I can answer this. One of the things I like about the series I write for Slate, not my podcast hit parade, but the series, why is this song number one? Is that first word, Why? Why is nice and open. It allows me to do a number of things. It allows me to express an opinion, whether I think the song is awesome or whether I think it sucks. I've written about songs I think are awesome over the last five years that I've written this series. I've written about songs I hate. Magic's rude. Ugh, couldn't handle that song. That was the, that sort of (laughs) watered down reggae song that was like a big hit in the summer of, I believe it was 2014. Ugh, couldn't stand that song. Um, And, you know, frankly, I'm not a big Post Malone fan. Um, but why also means not just, hey, Chris Melanfi, critic, what do you think of this song? It's explain this cultural phenomenon. So, right. for example, our current number one hit by Drake, In My Feelings, there's both uh, a level to understand In My Feelings as, um, as a mid-tempo hip-hop ballad. And there's a level to understand, well, it also went to number one because of this thing called the Shiggy Challenge or the In My Feelings Challenge where all these people were shooting videos of themselves doing a dance to the song in my feelings by drake that went viral kind of like the harlem shake five years ago and the viral videos were what powered in my feelings to number one yeah. so i can explain that and something that wouldn't have happened 25 years ago wouldn't have happened try six years ago yeah so so you when know. youtube wasn't baked into the charts youtube is now baked into the charts right and so i will say that one one if you will retirement plan that's baked into what i do whether it's the podcast hit parade or why is this song number one is that as long as people think I am still a credible, not arbiter, but a, a credible explainer yeah. of popular phenomena, I will still- And not some out-of-touch old guy. Uh, yeah. No, and I, believe me, I worry about the out-of-touch old guy. I'm going to be 50 in uh, three years. And um, 
You know, and I've, I draw inspiration from people who are older than me. Ann Powers is uh, in her 50s and still writing very powerfully about music. Uh, frankly, a better example than Ann um, is uh, Bob Criscow, Robert Criscow, a.k.a. the dean of rock criticism, who's in his 70s and still curious about rap records and, you know, pop records and rock records and everything. And, of course, he's got his biases. And, like, <laughs> among my rock critic circle, my pop critic circle, uh, talking about Bob, you know, who's a, a titan in our business, is uh is sport you know like oh did you see that bob said blah 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 yeah you know well bob's never really liked so and so when tom petty died last year there was a little rumble on on one of my social media feeds about bob's never really liked tom petty has he and you know like bob never came around to thinking tom petty was a great in rock music whereas most of us sort of especially the gen xers kind of assumed that for the last 30 years you said tom petty is great and he's 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 a legend for a reason so like you know but I'm, insp- I'm still inspired by a guy like Bob Criscow who is still curious and omnivorous into old age. And I, and I do hope that I can be that omnivorous. I don't know where my tastes are going to go. I've definitely observed uh, peers of mine. You know, I'm, I'm a, a solid Gen Xer. I was born in the early 70s. Uh, the Gen Xers are all now crossing 50. I'm going to get there in a few years. And I've observed – so I've had friends privately tell me like, I'm out. I'm tagging out. Like, I don't get it anymore. Yep. I often joke that Drake is the dividing line for Gen X. It's like Gen X grew up with rap, so we get rap, but we don't understand why this whiny, sing-songy guy who's Canadian is suddenly so popular that millennials and Gen yeah. Zers all seem to love him. I, yeah. I often joke that, that, that Drake is the, is the litmus test for whether or not you're finally like, okay, that's is it, it. Wait, is there a track on the new Drake record that, that samples a, a Michael Jackson tune? It, does, it doesn't just sample it. It's, um, it's like it's, incorporated. It's, it's, it's sort of a duet. Natalie Cold, uh, yeah. Michael Jackson. Okay, yes. It, it, they okay. took a demo from an album that Michael Jackson worked on and but never released in the early 80s. Okay, a woman was over here the other day and, and she and I were talking and she pulled that record out and played it, you know, put it on for me. Yeah. And she's, oh, this is amazing. And me, I'm a and huge Michael Jackson fan. I did not find this. Ama- I did not feel like Drake was adding anything to what Michael Jackson had left that made it any better than if it had just been the Michael Jackson. Yeah, thing. even when I'm being generous to Drake, I don't think the Michael Jackson duet is all that. Uh, it's, it's okay, not, it's okay. not, it's yeah. not my taste. You're not. So I'm not insane by, by no. You're not insane, or I'm not so far out. And of you're the certainly culture. not alone. You know, yeah. I've all and I was somebody. I was recently on the Slate Culture Gabfest, and and um, Julia Turner, the editor of Slate, who's who's closer to millennial age. She's like a, an an older millennial and almost a Gen Xer. Uh, Push back and said, I've met plenty of people my age who don't think Drake's all that. I said, I know, but I do find that the guy's had an, an, an insanely long career for a rapper. He's like at the top of his game right now, and he's been at the top of his game pretty much since he broke in 2009. That's that's unusually long in the world of rap. Yeah. Um. So people half my age think he is the shit. It's, it'll be interesting to me, and and this is, again, perhaps my own myopic view, if the kids who are really into this stuff today will be listening to it in 20, 30 years, the way we listen to Duran Duran. I'm so glad uh, you or, brought or up Duran Duran. Or if culture Duran. is shifting in such a way that I it's am, more disposable as time You asked that question just right, because here's the thing. Okay, I've now been alive long enough and been following music criticism in particular long enough, because that's one of my sports, right? In addition to following the charts as a sport, I kind of follow pop and rock criticism as a sport. I've now lived long enough to see certain artists go from pariahs to legends. Phil Collins was a joke 10 to 15 years ago. Now yeah. Phil Collins, I don't know about legend, but like people, people really respect Phil Collins. Sure. Like as a, as a, an innovator in the playing of drums, the yep. gated drum sound of the eighties was effectively you invented by him. Sure. Right. Uh, Duran Duran, certainly. Um, 
uh, Hall and Oates are another great example. Sure. Hall and Oates were finally inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame about two years ago. But if you go listen to, you know, Hall and Oates' greatest hits, all of those songs are great. They're great, but to a to a ba- you and I are, are Xers, Gen True. Xers. Uh, that's, yeah, Baby sure. boomers think oh, this is schlock. Mm. You know, I actually went to see uh, an outdoor. It was the, that festival that they had in Prospect Park a couple of years ago. That yeah. that ill-fated festival that I think only happened for two years. There was like a foodie festival yep. that also had music. In the middle of the uh, right, whatever that thing was called. I'm sorry, what was it called? I don't remember. I, I don't remember either. Um, anyway, the the big musical, the Get was Hall and & Oates. And I was there they with- still sound great live. Yes, they do. <laughs> and I was there with a friend of mine who's, who is um, my friend David Bridge, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, former guitarist himself, played in a small new wave band at the turn of the 80s called the Cosmopolitans. Sorry, I'm just shouting out a friend of mine who died no, a couple years ago. Um, but David was there and he was smirking through this whole performance and cracking jokes as if it was sort of generally understood among everybody that Hall and Oates were a joke because he's a he's a baby boomer. He was like, you know, in his late 50s and he's like, oh, well, of course, Hall and Oates are those cheesy guys who go private eyes. They're watching you. Yeah. Clap, clap. You know, right. he's just like, these guys are goofballs. And all Ooh, of us Gen Xers were like, Stone guy? these guys are legends, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I mean, uh, so David's somebody who came up during, the, uh, may he rest in peace, my friend David. He was somebody who came up during... Uh, peak, you know, Ford to City drop dead New York punk. You know oh, what I mean? Okay. Like That's the battle, the good old battle days of New York in the 70s and CBGB. He he was witness to that scene. So Hall and Oates are just a, a an empirical joke to him. And I would imagine that for critics of Bob Criscow's generation, I don't know about Bob, I think Bob has liked some Hall and Oates, but for critics of Bob Criscow's generation, it's just understood Hall and Oates are a joke. Sure. Meanwhile, for people in their 40s like me, it's understood. Hall and Oates are legends. Yeah. Like, they're great. But a lot of these big people like Kanye and stuff do get good reviews from record music critics that I, again, I don't really get it. I try to listen to it and I go, I don't understand why I don't understand like this. this, right. Right. But, but so they're not, it's not like they're going from a laughing stock to some icon 20 years from now. They're somewhat in an icon now, at least in their own minds. Right. And, and, it, it, I wonder it really because the way that people consume music now feels so different than it did back in the day. That's definitely collecting true. music. That's and, definitely and true. Ha- getting an album and listening to it solid for two weeks straight and sort of becoming ingrained with it. Like mm-hmm. people bounce around a lot more now because they've got Spotify, they got Apple Music, they got whatever it is. They're listening to you know YouTube mm-hmm. things. And again, I sound like an old man. I'm not trying to be disparaging. It's just the change. Sometimes of the world. I sound like an old man when I talk about okay. this phenomenon. I and have I, to. I, so yeah, I, in ten years, are they just going to be listening to whatever the new thing is? And whatever ten years ago, that's just the detritus that's left over from. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, no, I see what you're getting at. I mean, the only point I make, you know, I'm again, many of my Gen X critic peers are getting into that crotchety age. We're all getting, we're all middle-aged now, mm-hmm. much as it pains me to say the phrase middle-aged, we're all in middle-age. <laughs> um, and some of them are starting to tag out and some of them are still in the game, but saying, "Ugh, how can anybody like Drake? And I gently tell them, don't you think that the way the music of the 80s that we loved, like Duran Duran, Duran Duran's a great example. Boomer critics take it for granted that that's garbage. Um, we take it for granted that it's influential. And by the way, you can point to bands that have come out that have been influenced by Duran Duran. Oh, the, sure. The Killers are a band that are absolutely yeah. influenced yeah. by Duran Duran. It's, it's, yeah, it's not like it, it's all the replacements in Husker Du that were the influencers that's right. in the 80s. Those, those synth poppers were, were very, very influential. You can point yeah. to it. It happened. Um, but don't you think, I say to them, that 20 years from now, uh, a Gen Y or especially a Gen Z person is going to be looking back nostalgically 
on the music of Drake. I think it's inevitable. So like it's, it's our job to sort of come into it with open ears and say, well, take care was a great Drake album, but views as a mediocre Drake album. I, I think we're entitled to, to express that opinion, but I think we have to have the long view that like, we've all seen what's happened to the totems of our youth dismissed in their day. And then, you know, I mean, this is what the so-called trend known as poptimism is all about, is about being a musical omnivore and appreciating that there is no such thing as, you know, a an empirically great form of rock and everything else is, you know, junk by comparison. Um, and I think we have to take that as as our premise. And sometimes that means that you perhaps overstate the importance of something very popular like Taylor Swift, who I happen to like a lot. Um, but, you know, Taylor Swift gets written about plenty. Taylor Swift doesn't need more media attention. She doesn't sure. need more press. But it does mean that we can't treat Taylor Swift as disposable because Taylor Swift is no more disposable than Duran Duran were no. 20 yeah. years before her. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's kind of how I approach it. And I, I worry about my relevance, certainly. But I, the sneaky thing I've come up with is I've, I've invented a beat for myself that ensures that I will probably be able to continue to write about this stuff into my 60s. Sure. And and not sound like an old fool. Yeah. Even if the people who are 15 at that or 25 at that point aren't listening to you, the people who are listening to you now will continue to listen to you for another 15, 20 years. Let, let's hope so. I mean, also, one, one trick I pull all the time, I do this in both Why Is This Song Number One and in Hit Parade, is I talk about a current chart phenomenon and immediately I jump back multiple decades and say... This is frankly what I think my special sauce is. It's the thing I can do that that the young chart analysts find don't connections do. over yes. time. I just wrote about the Drake song, and the very first thing I did was I took it back to 2002 and talked about Nelly and about how a similar phenomenon happened Good to Nelly. Good gracious, ass is bodacious. The song after Good gracious, ass is bodacious. That was hot in here. <laughs> I love that song, by the way. It is a good tune. The, but the the maybe forgotten follow up is a song called Dilemma, which was a ballad okay. sung with the hook sung by Kelly Rowland. Um, no matter what I do. You know, and it's it's yeah. built on a, a hook of an old Patti LaBelle song that they interpolated from the 80s. Um, and that turned out to be a bigger hit than Hot in Here, which is little remembered now. And much like in my feelings, it sort of, it wasn't the record label's plan or, or Nelly's plan. It kind of grew out of, out of nowhere. And I basically compared it to that phenomenon. And that's not even going back that far. That's going back only about 15 years. I mean, I've sometimes compared what The Weeknd is doing to something Guns N' Roses did in the 80s. I've done that, you know, yeah. because my, my point is, yes, the ways we consume music are different now, but the fundamental human impulse to catch on to a trend is eternal. Um, the twist in 1960, uh, Chubby Checker, was arguably the first, you could call it viral phenomenon of the rock era. You know, and all these dance crazes we're now having on YouTube um, where, you know, the watch me whip, watch me nay nay, sure. that, that YouTube video goes, goes viral and, and makes the, that song a hit. Um, the twist effectively minus the 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 factor of YouTube did that in sixty. Um, an interesting chart. It did it much more difficultly in many ways, right? Correct. I, mean, I correct. guess if there's a TV show, maybe that people are twisting on. How else would anybody even? It started know about on American it? Bandstand, and people saw there this dance, and it was about as sexy as you could get on television because you know you were twisting your pelvis around. And what was innovative about the dance was that you weren't touching your partner. You were you were you were twist. You were yeah. doing a for in the front day of each other, yeah. somewhat sexy move without touching the other person. 
Um, and that was in, in, in a way a novelty. And by the way, the, the song, the twist predated Chubby Checker before he recorded it. It catches on with teenagers. It goes to number one in 1960. It's number one for a couple of weeks. It falls off the charts completely. And then weirdly, because this is how slow a viral phenomenon would move back then, it caught on with adults. So there are these newspaper reports of people at the Peppermint Lounge, a club that, you know, people under 18 were not allowed to go into, doing the twist. Yeah. Adults realized, oh, wait, this silly kid dance is really fun to do. Yeah. There's a wonderful episode, to digress further, there's a wonderful episode of Mad Men, uh, and I believe the first season, where uh, Peggy is doing the twist at a, at a Sterling Cooper, you know, party for an advertising client yep. uh, and trying to get Pete Campbell to dance along with her. And he's got a sourpuss on his face because Pete Campbell always had a sourpuss on his face in that sure, show. That was his job. That was his job to have a sourpuss on his face. But um, it was very accurate. And yet, yet again, Matthew Weiner with the, the period details. It's very accurate because that was the moment when the twist was catching on with, with full-grown adults. And here's what happens on the Billboard charts. The twist is the only song in rock era history to go to number one twice in two completely separate chart runs. There are songs that nowadays that will very frequently drop out of number one, maybe fall to number two or number three, and then go back to number it's in one. It's a movie or it hits a, the videos hit yeah, or something. Yeah, or you know, something will interrupt for a week or two or three, yep. and it'll come back. No, the twist fell off entirely was off the charts for a period of months, then came back and was number one again, I believe in like January of 1962, because it had one wave of um, virality with kids yep. and a second wave of virality with adults. That's just a slow motion version of what happens with YouTube now. Sure. It's what happened to Harlem Shake. It's what happened to Watch Me Whip, Watch Me Nene. It's what happened with the In My Feelings Challenge. So I'm, I'm pulling this little trick all the time and reminding people that human nature is what it is. And even though the technologies are different and the media are different and the, the vehicles of popularity are different, the way we connect to each other through music is eternal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, I also find it interesting the, the, the way that rock has not disappeared, but lost mm -hmm. its prominence. I mean, rock had a rock, good run. Rock, rock, right? Guys playing guitars. Yeah, 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 yeah. Rock combos. Yeah. I mean, that was, for decades, that was the foundation of popular mm -hmm. music, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and all but gone from the top 10. Yeah. Well, and what we now define as a rock band, for example, I would say probably the premier, not even Gen, Gen Y, more like Gen Z rock band is this band 21 Pilots. Yep. Now they stand up stage and they look like a rock band. There's a drum kit in the back. They will frequently play a guitar, but like they use electronics as much, if not more than they use, you know, traditional rock instruments. Yet they are pretty much considered the premier rock band of their day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, you know, I was thinking about this today because- in the in the past, in the fifties and sixties, we're talking about Motown. Carol King is a songwriter. Yep, the, the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, the Beatles. But the Beatles. Oh, I see. Well, you're you're trying to contrast it with the Beatles. Yeah, in the sense of there was music making as a factory, right? In in the same yes. way that it almost yes. is in Nashville mm -hmm. now, even still in Nashville in some, or what people now call the Rihanna model. Right. I was going to get to that. Yeah. 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 That, that, that was the way it was done back in the day. Mm -hmm. We have this great song. It's a great tune. Mm -hmm. We've got the backing tracks recorded. We just got to decide which artists we're actually going to have sing it. Right. It's really irrelevant. Smokey Robinson would write a song that Stevie Wonder would sing or, you yeah. know, et yeah. cetera. This yeah. song is going to be a hit no matter who does it. Right. In the same way that I think a lot of Katy Perry songs and a lot of this kind of stuff, it's like they could have given that to half a dozen different people to sing and it probably would have been a hit. Since, you, great since you've been gone by Max Martin was basically shopped, Ex shopped around to multiple singers exactly. before it got to Kelly exactly Clarkson. Exactly like that. Yeah. I feel like in the middle there, in this, from the Beatles, I guess, mm -hmm. to say the eight, mid 80s, 90s, 
there was this period where songwriters were, uh, there was a lot of singer songwriters or people Correct. in their own bands who wrote their own music. Mm -hmm. And there was this more of this, um, I like it. Did, were you a West Wing fan at all? I watched it for several seasons. Okay. I was not a diehard, but I okay. that, that That, you know, you have this unified concept that, you know, Aaron Sorkin is writing this stuff, even though there's other writers in the writer's room, ultimately it all goes through Aaron Sorkin and it's all in his voice. Right. And there were Sorkin fans, right? Sports Night fans sure, and, yeah. and West Wing fans. But you get and, to season five, season six, and John Wells brings in a bunch of people from ER. They're all great writers, but, but now it feels Sorkin. like you're writing by committee. Right. Right. You know? Right. And it feels like a lot of pop music now has that kind of thing. You look at the the amount of writers on 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 the credits. Right. There's six people working on it. There's seven producers. There's, sure. you know, that kind of thing. Sure. Do you think that there is is that that pendulum will swing back in the other direction? Or do you think that it was a blip, the idea that the artists themselves were sort of the creators? I don't know is the short answer to the will it, will the pendulum swing back? I will say that if I accept the premise of your question, which I basically do in terms of the, your timeline, I think that's accurate. The, the Beatles model, I'll call it, is is the anomaly. You know, there are still still alive and kicking, you know, and in their 70s and 80s, I, I actually saw one of them interviewed at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, songwriters from the Brill Building era sure. who are still a little pissed at John Lennon and Paul McCartney because they put them out of a job. Yeah. The idea that, You like, ruined this business model that was working just fine. Yep, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, I often find myself, again, my old trick of I reach back in history and sort of for people who are grumpy about what's happening on the charts now, I say, this is not new. I often find myself defending the Rihanna model of let's take everybody and bring them to, you know, a studio and let's see who comes up with the top, the top line as it's called the melody line or the hook. And let's see who comes up with, you know, the, the verse. And, you know, we, we assemble these, these parts in a factory and I say, well, Motown was a factory. You know, in fact, Motown only became more factory like as, as the years went on, when people press me to ask them, What's, excuse me, when people press me, ask me, do you have a favorite song? I say, well, that's hard because I like a lot of music, but if I had to pick one favorite pop song, my favorite pop song of all time is I Want You Back by the Jackson 5. I think it's a perfect record. It, you can't, yeah, you can't go wrong. There's no one who doesn't like that song. Right, it's, you throw it on in a party, it, yeah. it immediately grabs everybody. People who weren't dancing will dance. Structurally, it's, a, it's yeah. an amazing Barry Gordy record. write that one? <laughs> There, or he claims to have. He's not the only one. No, it, it was officially credited to a group that Barry Gordy called The Corporation. Ah. And it was it was a group of people, including Freddie Perrin. Oh, telling. Fr yeah, well, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, Freddie Perrin, who would later write I Will Survive for uh, Gloria Gaynor, among other people. But he was just kind of a journeyman who was all over the place. Um, and several other people, basically a, hand, a, a, a gang of about four or five Motown writers wrote I Want You Back. Um, in fact, Barry Gordy wanted to call it the corporation and not Freddie Perrin, uh, Barry Gordy, and da 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 da, because he was trying to get away from the star system of the '60s, where Holland Dozier Holland almost became more famous than the Supremes. There right. was a period when you know those three guys were so renowned for their amazing, legitimately amazing compositions that they were starting to demand more money. They were starting to say, "We don't want to work with this artist. We want to work with that artist." He's like, "It's this is Motown. It's a factory. We're going to call this the corporation." And yet they and by the way on. I want you back. Michael is absolutely singing, but like that's not 
Tito playing on the original right, recording. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Tito, Tito and Jermaine and, were basically mine. Yeah. Uh, you know when they performed it on on Ed Sullivan and what whatnot, or Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Um, yet it's a perfect recording. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's my favorite pop song, and it's a lot of people's favorite pop song. Um, what does that tell you about the you know? Well, it, it, you, the, the 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 factory model of of pop, pop hit creation. Well, I guess it comes. It down can to, produce genius. We, uh, yes, it can. It can produce genius. Although at that, to, to your point, that song would have. You know, that song was a great song. He, the minute they wrote it at a piano or at a guitar or whatever they sat down and wrote it on, mm-hmm. a few guys in a room. That was going to be a hit. that was just a great song, no matter what. All the all the Although layers the, after that were somewhat ancillary. Yes and no. It's it's also great because Michael Jackson sings it, and yeah. it's unreal. What's 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 uncanny about "I Want You Back" is that this this boy, yeah, is nine and ten year old. How is, old is, is he? Ten, I ten, yeah. ten when he records it, and he's got this grit. And you buy it, and you buy Chris, it. You buy it. You Every absolutely word of it. buy it. it. You you buy the romantic travail. You you buy the grit. You, yeah, ha, this kid has not experienced anything, and yeah. yet he sings with such passion. Um, it's a knockout performance. So he's not ancillary to the finished product. Um, so. It's it's an ineffable thing that you know makes a song a hit and makes a song great. I also just did a uh, an episode of of my hit parade podcast called Feet Don't Fail Me Now. Feet is a play on words. It's F E A T uh, period sure. for featuring. And I basically talked about the history of the featured yep. credit and pop I enjoyed music. that one. Thank you. And one of the points I'm making in that one is that one of the things that people roll their eyes about nowadays is not just the below the line credits which you were just talking about like sure. the, why does this thing have nine songwriters by the way sometimes it has nine songwriters because they've borrowed a melody from somebody and they have to give credit sure, for yeah, it because yeah. it's a sample and or sometimes an you're madonna and you want to be able to get publishing rights so you put your name on it after the fact i mean in 1985 sting got a full songwriting credit that probably made him almost as wealthy as every breath you take on dire straits money for nothing do, sure. you, know, do you know this tidbit sure. because the thing he sings i want yeah. my mtv is yeah. to the tune of don't stand, stand so, so Close to, me, to yeah. me, yeah, and he gets a full publishing credit on that. Um, anyway, um, my point was that now one of the things people are cynical about is not just below the line credits, but above the line credits. Now it's you know so and so featuring such and so sure. and so, yeah, and it's yeah. like you know DJ Khaled featuring Justin Bieber, Quavo. It's cross pollination. Cross, and my, one of the points I make is okay, but. I there's a part of me that would like to go back to the system where there was just one artist attached to every song. On the other hand, don't you think it's a better system when we know, you know, it, where everybody's getting credit? Because, you know, on those Phil Spector records, you yeah. know, um, Darlene Love would sing a vocal line and not even get credit for but, it, but even though she's the one but singing. But part of the fun as a music lover, knowing those tidbits, figuring out those tidbits, realizing that it's, you know, that's Jackson Brown singing background vocals on that tune that, you know, that, that Linda Ronstadt did, yeah. Whatever, whatever the thing, yeah, right. Um, it's interesting though. You were, you used the word when we were talking about Michael, you used the word, the, the final product. And I think that's where it comes down to is that is this product. It, yeah. It's product. It's, this is like, this is a thing we're selling as opposed to an artistic expression that happens to be for sale. Is guess, there a distinction between those two? This things? is going to sound unbelievably cynical, but I don't believe there's ever been anything pure. I'm a believer in to borrow a, f- a phrase I did not make up 
if Charles Dickens had been alive in the 20th century, he would have been a filmmaker, not a, you know, a writer of pulp Probably novels, true. you know, but just because you, you make access of the technology that's available to you. So for example, who, who started all this, this, this blip of the self-contained unit that both wrote and performed the Beatles, right? Yep. The Beatles are also famous for saying, oh, let's just nick this bit. Like, uh, you know, Paul McCartney sees a great piccolo trumpet player on the telly playing with the yep. London yep. symphony orchestra and says, yep. right, I want that guy playing on Penny Lane, yep. you know? or George Martin, you know, we need a harpsichord solo in the middle of In My Life. Why don't you play it? And we'll, you play the piano and we'll speed it up. Yep. Like they would beg, borrow and steal, or, you know, they bring in an orchestra for the end of a day in the life. They, they, they accessed whatever was available to them. And, or to pick another example, John Lennon basically rewrites You Can't Catch Me by Chuck Berry and turns it into Come Together. And by the way, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that should be legal and fair use. And, you know, but here come old flat top, he come grooving up slowly is a direct steal from, you know, yep. You Can't Catch Me. Um, the Beatles are, are supposedly the avatars of the pure artistic expression singer-songwriter. And yet they did it too. And it's, and the end, what else is Sgt. Pepper, you know, the purported greatest album of all time, but a, a, a product. And I mean that not as an insult, but as, as a, sure. as, as a, you know, it's, it's, it's an installation. It's an artwork. I, I got into a, a funny debate with a friend at a, a dinner party last week where but, she but was. Hold on a second. Can I ask you to say one thing? Yeah. But if, if, if they made Sergeant Pepper and Sergeant Pepper came out and was a money flop, I don't know that John Lennon and Paul McCartney would have considered it a failure where, there's a lot of music today. Right. It's entirely about whether it was an economic success. I think that's true to some extent, but I, I also think that, you know, we're recording this two days after Aretha Franklin died. And one thing I've been reflecting on, uh, I did an interview about Aretha Franklin on the gist the other day, and I've read a lot of, there's amazing writing out there. All of my fellow music critics are writing amazing stuff about Aretha Franklin. And every one of the debate points about Aretha is the move from Columbia Records to Atlantic. And, you know, she was on Columbia and famously Columbia didn't know what she, what to do with her. Sure. And it was only until she got to Atlantic that she came into her own. Now, unquestionably, I think you can say the Atlantic records are better than the Columbia records. On the other hand, many scholars, music scholars, uh, Aretha fans have pointed out those Columbia records are not that bad. There, you know, people point to the stilted ones where she's trying to sound like Dinah Washington and say, well, boy, that really was not right for her. But a lot of them were quite good. And the only reason most people have a, a low opinion of Columbia, when you boil it all down and say, wow, did you really hate all those records? They say, well, they weren't hits. What, what Aretha and what everybody liked about the, um, the Atlantic sides yeah, yeah. was that they were hits. You know, she, she not only came into her own, she was doing something daring that also succeeded. So- yeah. As far back as the 60s, somebody who's art, I think we can all agree when it comes to pure artistry, there's fewer artists more pure than Aretha Franklin. But Aretha Franklin wanted to have hits. Sure. She would get grumpy when she felt like they weren't promoting her records right and she wasn't getting hits. Um, when she performed live at the Fillmore in 1971, she was gr uh, getting grumpy with Atlantic Records because she's like, I'm still scoring R&B hits, but I haven't had a pop hit in two years. What's going on? What, what's yeah, with yeah. these white people that they yeah. don't like my music? Yeah. And so she she intentionally started recording covers of more white rock songs like Bridge Over Troubled Water by Paul Simon sure. or Let It Be by Paul McCartney and stuck in more covers of hippie rock songs into her live at the Fillmore set. She's like, I need to get the white people back. She yep. cared. She wanted hits. Sure. Everybody's always wanted hits. It, you know, so 
I I bristle. So you don't little, make the distinction. I I'm not saying it doesn't exist, and I'm not saying that there aren't great songs that aren't that aren't hits. Yeah. Um, my favorite band of the 21st century is LCD Sound System, and LCD Sound System have never had a top 40 hit. Yeah. Um, all my friends is one of my favorite songs of the last 20 years, and all my friends didn't chart on any Billboard chart. Right. People think it did; it really didn't. None of them, not even the modern rock chart. Nothing. I, I think all, you know, people talk about all my friends when they talk about the greatest songs of the 21st century to date. All my friends frequently makes those lists. I think it's a great song. I think it's like, you know, a latter day Bowie heroes kind of song, but, and nothing will take away from my opinion that it wasn't, that it, that it is a great song, despite the fact that it got no ink in Billboard at all. But I, it's more that I bristle at the idea that hit making doesn't matter to a certain kind of artist. It, it kind of matters well, to all of them. Yeah. I, when, when Lou Reed died, I did an, a kind of a, an obit slash encomium for him for Pitchfork where I talked about Lou Reed and the charts. And I, and I got this over with near the top of the article. I, I said, some of you reading this may be saying, why are we even talking about this? He's Lou Reed. He was in the Velvet Underground. He didn't care about the charts. Ah, but he did. Oh, I'm sure he did, yeah. He totally cared. Like, for example- but do you think it was for purely economic reasons? Like, oh, I need to get paid to like- Some of that. Support my lifestyle? Some of it is pure cynicism. It's like, you know, somebody's making money off of this. I want to be the one to make the money. So some right, of it's right. that. And some, some of it is, I want to know that people love me. Yeah. And the, my point with Lou Reed in particular, first of all, the, the most famous quote about the Velvet Underground, it's been repeated two billion times. Uh, only 30,000 people bought the first Velvet Underground album, but all of them formed a band. Right. Um, that was coined by, I believe, Brian Eno. He was either Brian Eno or John Cale. I'm pretty sure it was Brian Eno. And the, and I, the reason Brian Eno quoted that specific sales figure, 30,000 people, he got it from Lou Reed. Because Lou Reed told him, yeah, I checked my, my, my you know, royalty statements and they claim that we've sold 30,000 copies of The Velvet Underground and Nico. And that's because Lou Reed cared. And like Lou Reed, like whenever, if an album of his, like, you know, Coney Island Baby, you know, was the reaction to Metal Machine Music and Metal Machine Music was the reaction to Sally Can't Dance. Sally Can't Dance was a top 10 album. It was Lou Reed's only solo top 10 album. And he's like, that was a little too poppy. I think I need to freak everybody out now because he, he was paying attention to his public reception and his sales and then modifying his behavior accordingly. Sure. Rebelling against Rebelling it against ways. it. Because that was Lou Reed. Lou Reed, rather than wanting more hits, a la Aretha Franklin in 1971 with white audiences, Lou Reed kind of wanted to attract and repel. That was kind of Lou's thing. Yeah, yeah. But he still cared. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I always, if there's one theme in my writing, it's that I'm always questioning this sort of pure artistic expression idea that the charts don't matter or that success and, and hit making doesn't matter. Yeah. It, it kind of matters to everybody. Even if like Lou Reed, when you record metal machine music, even if you're rebelling against it, it still matters. You know, it, it's I, when I listen to people like you and, and I, you know, you're my friend and I greatly enjoy your show every once in a while. And I can't give you a specific example because they're not in my head at the moment. Sure. But I'll be listening to you discussing some artists and sort of, putting yourself inside their head for a moment about what they were thinking when they were making this record. And you say, how can you know that? No, I say as somebody who makes a lot of stuff, cause that's what I do. I say that's complete BS. Like people don't, it's the same way. And again, this is not like a specific rip, but like it's the same way I go to an art museum and, and you read the label and somebody goes into all this, you know, thing about the how, line, the, the exactly shape, yeah, right, the, yeah. that choice of cerulean was due to this, whatever. It's like, no, that person just thought that that looked cool because that's the way that that goes when sure. you're making stuff. Yeah. And that, that, that sometimes critics put, put too much, um, uh, uh, 
they, they think that there's a lot of pre-thought in the creative process when mm-hmm. there really isn't. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you, that you, do you think you get it right and I'm wrong? Or do you think that like it's somewhere in between or, or that, that the way that critics are looking at it is, is, is in the shade of their own view of, of where that music in this case fits inside the world. And therefore that's probably what was going on in the head, even if they didn't think they were, they, they were, the answer is a huge question. The answer to your question is yes. I mean, like you're right about all of it in a way. Um, here's what I'll say about that. What I like about my beat to go back to why I write hit parade, you know, why I do the hit parade podcast and why I write, why is the song number one is that, at the end of the day, there is the public reception. And that is particularly when you're talking about the charts, the, the charts are what they are. And that's incontrovertible. So I can't always know sure. what is in the artist's head without question. Um, and I, I try my best not to presume to know all the time. Um, I did an episode of Hit Parade about Donna Summer. Yeah, I like it, that one. That was I, great. Thank you very much. And it occurred to me, I got three quarters of the way through writing and recording the thing. We had like a, a full cut of the show. When it occurred to me, I had, ne- I had, I had other people talking about Donna, including David Bowie, mm-hmm. and I did not have Donna herself. And that was a real fault of mine because I did not want to speak for, particularly a bad look for a middle-aged white man to be talking, uh, you know, yeah. talking for a black woman. Um, and I made sure to go find uh, a YouTube clip of her talking about what she was, what she intended with love to love you, baby. Right. Um, cause you know, which is a record that I've never particularly liked. I know it's a huge seminal record. I know it's not it has, my favorite. I mean, it's yeah. an important record. I, I'll listen I, to I last like dance it. 10 times before I'll listen to that. One. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And I respect that. Um, I'll listen to last dance before I'll listen to love to love you, baby. On the other hand, I like love to love you, baby. And it's an interesting hugely record. Hugely influential, hugely influential. And, and, um, and very important in the, the the arc of Donna Summer's career and in the arc of disco music and its its acceptance by the general public, the way it titillated the general public, why it became a hit, um, what it did for uh, albums, disco being regarded as an album length medium, the fact that the full length version you had to, if you wanted all the orgasmic moans, you had to buy the album version, and you know it filled the full side of an album. Um, it wasn't just a 12 inch single. It was actually the side of an album. It was weirdly I had, and I, by the way, that was something that I, I think I screwed up in some of my writing earlier that I got right when I did the podcast was that the 12 inch was still in its infancy and actually the full length version, if they played it in a disco, they were playing it off the album. Uh, later there were other 12 inch mixes of, of Donna songs that were a big deal in their 12 inch form. But Donna was interesting because she was actually treating albums the way a prog rock band like yes would treat albums you know yeah and when i say she it was her coupled with her two collaborators Giorgio Moroder and peter pete Bellotti. um who, who they did a nice thing on the uh the um uh robot people um daft punk the daft punk record yeah the daft punk record i i really i really liked uh, that that tune is ridiculous plus you got omar akim or whoever on the drums who's just like killing it in the end of that yeah tune. yeah no i know i really like sorry uh, go ahead no no that's quite all right um but you know, you're right that there are so many stories, some of them apocryphal, some of them bullshit, about what was Donna thinking. Because Do- And Donna herself is not necessarily a reliable narrator. Yeah, how so- much of that is p- backfilled because it became a big thing and then you have to come up with a good story to, s- to give an interview. So you know? the little clip I found of Donna talking about herself, she addresses Love to Love You, Baby, and she's both praising and dismissing it in, in equal measure, saying it was important for me, but, you know— 
it was it was not my greatest vocal performance. I mean, famously, Donna had a, an insane multi-octave range, and on her breakthrough hit, she's whispering, you know, um, through much of it and, and cooing and, and, you know, doing sex kitten voice. Um, but I can't claim always to know, and I do my best when I'm doing the podcast in particular to research every angle so that I have some idea and I, and I have backup. Frankly, it's easier in my articles, like why is this song number one? Because then what I do is I link out to other people. And at the very least, if you think I'm full of shit, you can click the link and see if you think the source that I'm citing is itself full of shit. And yeah, it may yeah. still be full of shit. Yeah. Um, but I try to back myself up with as much scholarship as possible. But you're right that it's, at some point, some of this is guesswork. Yeah. Um, and, beca- and because, again, to go back to Aretha, I just listened to an excellent episode of the New York Times podcast uh, with uh, John Caramonica. They had a whole long discussion about Aretha, first in the studio with all of their critics, including John Perellis. And then he interviewed David Ritz. David Ritz, who's probably the best music uh, biographer in the business. He's, he's written the, the authorized biography of, of Marvin Gaye, of Aretha Franklin. And he, he talked about how Aretha was an unreliable teller of her own story. He wrote two books about Aretha Franklin, yeah. one an authorized biography. As was famously Bob Dylan, right? He used to right. like make up stories about his youth and where he came from. And, and then Bob, David Ritz did a second, David Ritz did a second biography of, of, without Aretha's participation. While Aretha was still alive, she was very angry at him. <laughs> um, but because Aretha, she liked to present this sunny front on sure. everything and really not let particularly all these, you know, obsessive, nerdy white people into her, into her business. Like, I ain't going to tell you about the kid I, the, yeah. the child I birthed at 12 years right. old. It's none of your yeah. damn business. Well, I'm not going to talk about C.L. Franklin, my father, and, and how he died. I'm, uh, that's none yeah. of your business. But so much of the business is myth-making. Right. Including myth-making by the stars themselves. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so we can never claim to know. I mean, right now, if you read all the scholarship about Aretha Franklin, I'm sure that your spidey sense will be tingling multiple times. You'll read something and you'll be like, is that true? That's full of I just, you know, yeah, that's Just crap. yesterday, literally last night, I got, we got into a debate online with Rob Sheffield, one of the best critics we have out there right now, one of, and a dear friend of mine, who wrote a terrific piece about Aretha Franklin. And he, we were all debating what Aretha says in the breakdown of respect. Rob claims, and he is all but pounding the table that he knows where the the part uh, R-E-S-P-C-T, tell me what it means to me, R-E-S-P-C-T. And then what are those next few words? Yeah, take, take care it, of TCP or something. Some people say it's take out TCP. Yeah. And and Rob claims that it was a play on words that um, if you take out the letters T-C and P from respect, you're left with R-E-E-S, which basically implies that this song she's taken from Otis Redding is now Rees, as in Aretha's. That seemed too clever to all of us. That is pretty clever. Right? It's a little too clever. But that was his theory? I, Gavin Edwards, all of us were saying, Rob, are you sure about that? And then Gavin found a source where Aretha herself claims, no, 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 I was saying, take care, TCB. And the TCB stands for taking care of business. And that's, okay. what, I, and that's what I meant. Which, it came from the horse's mouth. Which makes mouth. a certain amount of sense, yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, like maybe... I don't know if Rob. Maybe she right. was just I, I, mumbling, and it sounded cool. And see, that's my. This view. is a classic example, right? And and we critics, because we're all writing about Aretha Franklin this week, we're all analyzing this. Yeah. We may all have it wrong, and by the yeah. way, Aretha herself may yeah. also have it wrong. Yeah, that, that that critics, I think, and music fans, a lot of times want to find meaning in things that don't necessarily have any real deep meaning. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know. So I I try to be as humble as I can and cite my sources wherever I can. Fair enough. And and acknowledge that. I'm not always going to get it right. Can, 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 are you a fan of fidelity? Do you care about fidelity of music, like the, the audio quality? Um, you know, I, 
I care, but I, there's a limit to how much I care. Uh, I, well, how, how much time do you have? I have, I have strong <laughs> opinions about the, the vinyl fetishization of the 21st century, sure. which I think has gone a little overboard. I agree. Um, I am a CD fan, which vinyl makes- Vinyl has makes, just as many downsides as upsides. Right. Yeah, well, which my, is what my, we, everyone was trying to get away from when they started using right. digital. Well, no, when people say, oh, a vinyl LP always sounds better. No, it doesn't. No, 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 doesn't. no. The reason the compact disc was invented, everybody says it was only invented so the record labels can make lots of money and charge no. $18 for everything. No, it was also invented because mass market vinyl sounded like crap. Yeah. It really did. Yeah. You know, like, and the more you play it, the worse it sounds, and the more, and, and it degraded, yeah. and yeah. and you can jump between tracks. I mean, some people say that it's 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 the it's the indexing around CDs that was the big, you know, the it was of, the hook for me. So sure. the first time I, sorry, a little reverie. Okay. The first time I saw a compact disc in the summer of 1986, I want to say either 85 or 86. Came and to I the late, Chris. I don't know. No, early. I was really early. I was 13, going on 14. And I, uh, it was, it was, I was really seriously among the first of my friends, if not the first, to buy a disc man. Um, most people I know didn't buy compact discs until the late 80s or early 90s. Yeah. I bought one with my summer job money at age <laughs> 14. Um, because the minute I saw it was being demoed by an adult that if you wanted to hear track six, you could just go zap, zap, zap and go to track six. Yeah. I was like, that's it. Blue I have mind. to have this. Yeah. I, I'm sold. Not only are they shiny and they have little booklets yeah. that are like, you know, e easier to read maybe than the LP jacket, but like you can zap to the song you want to hear. Yeah. And it, and you know, you don't, you don't have to, you know, rewind and fast forward like you do on try a tape to find it. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. try to find the groove on an LP. I, I was like, yeah. I have to have that. So Sony gave my father a CDP 201, which is like the second CD player yes, in the yes. US. And so we had, in fact, it was down at my sister's. I was playing with Does it yesterday. Does it still work? Yes, it still works. The, the, the only big problem is the, the drawer motor is dying. That's, of course, the mechanical thing is the first thing but, that dies. But, but you know what's crazy about that CD player? And I'm a bit of an audiophile. You know, I, mm -hmm. I have a $10,000 stereo, not a $100,000 stereo. You know right. what I mean? That kind of thing. That level of audio. Uh, yeah, the, the, the sort of 97 percentile level of audio, you know. that I would say know. I'm a 90th percentile audiophile. Enough, I have yeah. Kef speakers yeah. at home, but like... I listen on earbuds, so right. I, but, oh, and by the way, I have two hundred dollar earbuds, so I care enough about the earbuds that I have good earbuds. Emotic, what do you listen to? Uh, uh, I have B and O's. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, but the, the the thing that always it it still sounds good that CD player because Sony the analog section it's really good. Mm -hmm. So even though it's got a really early DAC in it and it's you know all kinds of other things that because the computing power wasn't up to it right it still sounded great because the analog outputs sounded really great because sony knew how to make those right and they and they they you know they put money into this thing because it was the time it was probably a three thousand dollar deck you know right and it was the um, state of the art for the time yep and it, it still sounds great um can we talk about billboard for a minute absolutely he's anytime like, he's like you says the chart this? analyst of course you can talk about billboard um billboard has changed the way they do things a number of times over the years. You bring this up a lot on your podcasts. Yep. They changed the rules of how, why, what is number one, what they count. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, uh, what, what is the, what was, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm completely blanking on the, uh, sound scan sound scan, which is when they that actually came started in just 1991. taking information from retailers, essentially the, the barcode scanners. And it had, they were getting accurate sales data for the first time. Right. Okay. So, it's like the BCAD moment of charts. It's literally like before SoundScan, after so SoundScan. So where were they getting the information before then? They were Nielsen phone, level phoning, stuff. No, not Nielsen. It was it was Billboard itself 
And this, by I the way, this Nielsen went for type of thing. Like yeah, no, it were... wasn't Nielsen type. But, well, okay. No, it was, the way Nielsen science works in the old days is that if you were a Nielsen family for TV ratings, you were standing in for literally thousands or even millions of other families because that's how statistical modeling works, yeah, yeah. right? You, you survey a thousand people and you get a sense of how yep. a million people think, right? That's how Nielsen works. No, they were actually contacting all the retailers and all the radio stations. The problem was the whole system was fudgeable. So the record label. And was it rigged, like payola kind of rigged? It was payola rigged, yeah. Uh, have you ever read a book called Hitmen by Frederick Dannon? No. If, if you ever want a good pot boiler, it's now a more than quarter century old book. I think it came out in 1990, but it is such a ripping good yarn. It's about, it's basically about how corrupt the record business is and has <laughs> been its whole life, you know, and, you know, every, everything f- from, you know, the, the rapacious men who signed black recording artists in the fifties and like all but robbed them blind in, you know, in the birth of rock and roll to payola and how it worked. And, and when the government got involved in shutting down payola first in the fifties, then in the eighties, there was, there was an enor- enormous, uh, payola shutdown in the mid eighties. Um, it was possible prior to SoundScan to really buy yourself a hit record. Now, the cynic would say it's still possible to buy yourself a hit record. Go out it's and just, buy a bunch of records. Or well, give them away at your concerts, all these little tricks it's, that people it's are It's trickier using. now because the charts are measuring actual data. Prior to 1991, what they were measuring was the data they collected was basically surveys of retailers – and radio stations to say, what are your 30 records this week that you're playing in regular rotation? Or what, what are your best sellers this week? And it was an exceedingly fudgeable system and people could be paid off, paid off in cocaine and, you know, money slipped under the table, wads of cash. And that's how, when you know. When Billboard calls, tell them this. Precisely. Exactly. That, when Billboard calls, tell them this. And by the way, this is how Cashbox Magazine, all of the other, there were, Billboard is now the last man standing, but there were radio and records was a Cashbox magazine. Cashbox used to be a thing. Cashbox was a big, was a big uh, magazine until I believe they shut down in the early 2000s. There were competitors to Billboard. Billboard has just lasted the longest. And Billboard had the genius of coming up with the Hot 100 back in 1958, which everybody agrees was like the best overall model for a and single Sound chart. And SoundScan was their technology, their, their... SoundScan was not their technology. It was a, They licensed it? They licensed it, and it was it was not even owned by Nielsen originally. Nielsen now owns it. It's no longer even called SoundScan. For years, it was called Nielsen SoundScan after they bought it. Now it's just called Nielsen Music. Um, SoundScan was an independent company that basically had an exclusive contract with Billboard. Okay, and when it came online in 1991, it was very controversial. And it 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 to use Did the, the old thing phrase, that was one to ten the week before, and then the thing that was week to ten. Yeah. With, Everything shifted around. I mean, the the simple, as, as has been chronicled many times by both me and other people who've reported on what happened in 1991, it not only affected certain artists, it affected whole genres. Basically, people didn't realize that rap and country were selling as well as they do. Yeah, they were the, huge. I mean, the biggest selling musician of the 1990s of any genre was Garth, Garth Brooks. Brooks. And Garth Brooks' entire career can basically be laid at the feet of SoundScan. SoundScan revealed, no, seriously, this guy is selling better than anybody right now. Um, funny little anecdote in the eighties, I have a, I guess you could call him a former cousin in law. He's no longer uh, married into my family, but he married my cousin. Yeah. Um, his name is, I'll, I'll say his name. I, I don't, sometimes I tell anecdotes of his and I don't reveal them because you know, he's telling me stories out of school, but this is an innocent enough story that I can say his name is John Bulos. He used to be married to my cousin Gia. 
Um, and I, of course, because I was obsessed with the charts in the eighties, he, he's in radio promotion. He's worked for a number of record labels. Over so he the can years. tell you all kinds of stories. He tells me all kinds of stories. And, and many of them I don't, I don't share. <laughs> One of his famous lines is artists are head cases. And you know, he, he basically, they're, they're all a little crazy, sure. you know? Uh, but one story, I, a more innocent story he told me in the early eighties, I, I would, a- I asked him sometime around 1984, 85, when he was working for RCA records, I said to John Bulos, so who's your bestseller? Like who, who, who's, who's the artist who sells the most records? It's gotta be Hall and Oates, right? Cause he was, you know, on the label that yep. had Hall and Oates or, or Eurythmics, right? And he shook his head and he said, nope, Alabama. Alabama is easily RCA records bestseller right now. Sure. And if you watch the charts in 1984, you would not really realize that Alabama were as enormous as they were because the charts were very skewed toward mainstream rock. Yeah. Um, they would get reported. So like if a Nashville retailer or a, you know, a Paducah, Kentucky retailer was called, obviously they'd say, Oh, mountain music by, by Alabama. That's our number one Huge seller record, this yeah. week. But it, the penetration of country was not fully appreciated by the charts. And it was only when SoundScan came came along that people realized, oh God, a Garth Brooks record is actually outselling the Mariah Carey record. You know, yeah. that was, that was earth shattering to, to learn that with real data. But in the, but in the seventies and eighties, I mean, there were stuff on the album charts that the stuff that had perennial records, mm-hmm. Eagles, greatest hits, uh, dark side of the moon. You know what I mean? Like these records that were there for, a decade or more or longer, you know, that sold right. tens of millions of copies. Were those really is that selling that many records or was that just some weird holdover of is no there- that and more in fact, okay. How much time do you have? <laughs> the dark side of the moon owns a particular chart record that it rode the charts from 1973 when it came out until 1988 unbroken and it has been on the charts more weeks it's come back and forth on and off the charts ever since um that remaster back in 99 2000 or whatever it is on sacd sounded amazing did it really yes a confession absolutely amazing confession and you will probably scoff and kick me out of your out of your home i'm not a pink floyd fan. i'm not a huge pink floyd fan either but i appreciate pink floyd is a little bit like steely dan to me where like i don't always listen to them but you listen to them and you go Yep, these guys knew what they were doing. I can name five to ten Pink Floyd songs I like, including I think Wish You Were Here is a phenomenal song. I think sure. Comfortably Numb is a phenomenal song. But um, the, the the worship of Roger Waters has always given me oh, swift it's weird. pain. Yeah. But, but anyway, okay. go ahead. So the chart record of Dark Side of the Moon is, is, is storied and famous. And it's real. The record was selling all that time. Here's what's a little bit of bullshit about it, though. There were other records that were selling that well and that consistently, like Led Zeppelin IV, but they wouldn't necessarily ride the charts. There was something about the cult of Dark Side of the Moon where there was kind of a mass collusion by the retailers that on the one hand, they were absolutely right. The dark side was selling that many copies week after week, but there were other records from the seventies that would, you know, hotel California by the Eagles. Was it less collusion than mass delusion? It was sort of like a, a, it wasn't a delusion because this, the record was actually selling. I'm not saying that the Pink Floyd record was not selling. It absolutely was. It's just it wasn't the only one. Right, right. The, the there fact that it was the albums. one that people brought up when somebody called them and asked. Every week, Billboard would call and all these retailers said, yep, I sold another 10 copies of Dark Side of the Moon this week. You yeah. know, But they wouldn't say, yep, I sold another 10 copies of, I don't know. Pink. Which keeps it at number 63 on the charts for 20 right. years. Yeah. What The other thing that was revealed by SoundScan in 1991 was just how many copies, not only Dark Side of the Moon, but Legend by Bob Marley sold. <laughs> Every huge week, record right yeah legend was made by soundscan not only garth brooks was made by soundscan legend by bob marley was made by soundscan gold by abba was made by soundscan I, yeah. the question i wonder if 
it, it accurately portrayed sure, sure. that dark side was the tip of a very large iceberg. Because, because the record companies themselves never want to give up figures? Or will they give up figures no, if what it's a the, good what PR? The rec- here's the record companies what they want. And, and, and actually this dovetails with what's about to happen with Aretha Franklin. I can take this all the way up to the present day. Um, what the record companies wanted on the charts was for the charts not to be clogged by Legend and Dark Side and Abba Gold and Journey's Greatest Hits and Tom Petty's Greatest Hits. So you came up with the, what was the chart called? The catalog chart. Thank you. So in 1991, Billboard came up with a chart where any album that was older than a certain number of weeks and had fallen below a certain position would be permanently retired to the catalog Which I chart. still think is BS. I think it should stay on the on the well, main chart. Well, y- you obviously haven't been following the charts in the last decade. Billboard recanted on that policy. Oh, there is good. no there is a catalog chart, but it no longer matters really because So you can still find old stuff on the real the, chart. On the real chart, regular albums sell. Good. No, and we're about to find out because now that Aretha has passed, one of the things that happens, it's a bit ghoulish, of course, is that after an artist dies, their records all sell. Uh Prince had a number one album two years ago a week after he died because the very best of Prince was the best-selling album in America. Now, under the old system that Billboard had from 1991 to about 2009, 2010, that would have been relegated to the catalog chart and you would not have necessarily known this is technically the best-selling album in America. Uh, What finally killed that policy was Michael Jackson dying in 2009. For a period of about six weeks in the summer of 2009, Michael Jackson's greatest hits album, Number Ones, was the best-selling album in America, but Billboard still had the catalog chart policy in effect, and that had been permanently shunted to that chart. And so there were all these other albums that were number one on the big chart, the, the flagship chart, the Billboard 200 album chart, that were selling worse than number ones by Michael Jackson. Sure. And people were complaining loudly, like, yeah, your chart is claiming yeah. that this Maxwell record is the number one album, but we all know the actual number one album in America right now is number ones by Michael sure. Jackson. So that fall, Billboard finally relented and said, in part because the charts, you know, album sales were now so low that it was a little absurd to save all these positions for a record that was only selling maybe a thousand copies in a week. You know, that that was what the record labels wanted was they wanted those 200 positions to pretty much only reflect quote unquote, current records that they were, you know, promoting actively right now. And I don't need you to tell me that Journey's Greatest Hits sold for the 598th week. I know that it's selling. Don't clog up the chart by telling me Journey's Greatest Hits is still selling. Leave some positions out of the 200 positions on your chart for this album of mine that I'm working really hard on. And it only got up to number 178 this week. But if you put all these catalog albums on the chart, number 178 is is not going to break the 200. Billboard finally relented and said, look, you know, albums are selling less anyway. I'm I'm speaking out of turn here. This is not officially their policy, but basically album sales are selling less. It's, it's a, it's a miscarriage of, of the, the record to, to claim that these old albums are not among the best sellers. It's actually useful to find out that when Prince dies, this Prince greatest hits is the, is the best seller in America. We're, we're, or in the case of the real reason they did it, Michael Jackson, it's useful for us to know how well thriller is selling and how well bad is selling and how well number ones is selling. So we, we hereby rescind the policy and now everything charts on the album chart. Where do you come down down on the album versus single importance? You're a song guy more than an album guy. I am. I love albums. I care passionately about albums. I and being there was another turn of the Beatles phenomenon. The importance of right. this collection of things called an album. Well, the the most um, the most downloaded episode of my podcast is a, a, an episode called "The Great War Against the Single," mm-hmm. in which I talk about how in the '90s the record industry wanted you to buy full length CDs and stopped selling so, retail singles. This right. was before the invention of iTunes and the download, um, and. 
you know, one which of, buoyed w- album sales and maybe right. inflated a it bunch of records, including that would never including one hit wonders deal. by the likes of Chumbawamba and Lou Bega. Like sure. these records went triple platinum right. off of one hit. Um, but when I talk about it, I talk, I go all the way back to the sixties and I talk about the Beatles and about how Sergeant Pepper basically convinced the industry that people were going to only want to buy bundles of songs, not individual songs. So basically where I come down on albums versus singles is I love albums. I care about albums. Albums are what I'm obsessed with as a critic and as a, an appreciator of music. But I fundamentally believe the core unit of music is the song. It's the song, yeah. And, and the record industry has tried over the decades to convince us, no, no, the core unit of music is the album. And I think albums are great. And I think albums are the way that we often judge you know, how an artist moves from phase to phase from, you know, the equivalent of a blue period for a painter to a, you know, a a different period. But at the end of the day, people want to hear songs. Songs are are what are our common language. So as a guy who is into the numbers, the the, the records of records, as Mm -hmm. it were, how do you, how do you juggle the changes of rules that billboard stuff and the sound scan stuff and what they consider a single and when they bring in YouTube and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. How do you compare a record that was number one for 26 weeks in 2005 mm-hmm. compared to something in, you know, in 1984, you know, comparing thriller right. to a Beyonce record, are they comparable in any, in any way because so much has changed about the way you measure success and, and those numbers. It's it's an imperfect science. It will always be an imperfect science. There's a reason why I call the Hot 100 the Dow Jones of pop, because the Dow, which is something that is quoted on the nightly news every day, is actually a formula where the 30 stocks in it have changed over the years, and they've even monkeyed with the formula to make the Dow in 1929 comparable to the Dow of 2018. And similarly, Billboard has had to change the rules to make the Hot 100 of 2018 comparable to the Hot 100 of 1968 or 1958 or 1988. To keep their own relevance or to... To keep up with how people consume hits. And you're... I guess my where I come down is that the, when you're comparing hits of yesteryear, you're comparing apples and pears, but you're not comparing apples and kumquats. Sure. I, I still feel like you're still talking about the same sport. Um, and and frankly, I think the genius of the Hot 100, the reason why I, I, I stick up for it and I think it's still a great chart is because it is adaptable. I think it, it never stays still. Um you know, the the British have had a problem with their charts because their chart for the longest time only measured one thing and measured sales. It has to do with the way the British radio system works, that they don't factor radio into their charts because you have the BBC, which is a public trust. And so it seemed weird to the Brits to factor radio into their charts the way we factor radio into our charts. Sure. Um, but then it became a problem because when digital music first took over in the 2000s, and then especially when streaming took over, because they didn't have radio as a countervailing force on their charts, you would have things like records staying at number one for absurdly long periods, or you would have Ed Sheeran debuting with all 18 tracks on his Divide album, and the 18 of the top 20 songs on the British charts one week last year were Ed Sheeran records. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's almost becoming a problem for us because, you know, now Drake will drop Scorpion and seven of the top 10 records for a week will be Drake songs. Um, and so we had this problem. Six, of, five or six of those falling out over the next two weeks correct, to be replaced with something correct. else. Now, but, and, and, you know, it was trumpeted the week that Drake did this, that he beat a, a 
roughly, what is it, 55 or 54-year-old record by the Beatles, who for famously for one week, for actually a few weeks in 1964, had five of the top 10 records. Right. Is that comparable? That's is that a good com- example. Is that comparable? And to me, it's not. I think it's comparable with an asterisk or an ex- explanation, but okay. you, you have to just acknowledge that the the rules of the game changed, but much the way baseball has changed the designated hitter rule over sure. the years, yeah. you know, or the way home runs are tallied or whatever, the sport is... Well, we can still compare Hank Aaron to think, whoever, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Also, to talk about something we talked about a minute ago about SoundScan, it's funny, I spent so many years in my chart writing talking about how, quote-unquote, corrupt the charts were before SoundScan and how fudgeable. And now, it's funny, in some of my writing, I've had to go the other way and say, that doesn't mean that the charts prior to 1991 were meaningless. If you zap back to 1983... When, you know, payola was rampant and songs, you know, hits were bought and sold, the two biggest records on the chart in 1983 were Billie Jean by Michael Jackson and Every Breath You Take by The Police. Now, I was alive then. Those were the two biggest records in America that yep. year, you know, and they were, they were they, everywhere. Everyone bought copies. They, it's not like right. that was a, they, These a were myth. omnipresent yeah. records. So can you argue on the margins that there was corruption and that songs were shoved into the top 10 were, yeah. that were yeah. maybe really yeah. top 30 records? Synchronicity still sold a crap load of copies. Right. Because everybody wanted to own every breath you take. Right. Like they were, they reflected something in the culture. Um, I did an article that weirdly got very controversial. It's, it's the, the one time uh, I got put on blast on Twitter where I compared Drake to Prince, uh, which made some people angry. Frankly, I was the, the object of, um, black Twitter's scorn for a period of about three or four hours one day because they thought I was saying that Drake was as good as Prince, which I wasn't. Um, I mean, I'm a Gen Xer. Why would I ever say Drake's as good as Prince? I'm, I'm an enormous Prince fan. Um, but here, here was the point I was making in this article. I wrote an article for Slate in the summer of 2016 in which I said that views, his album, uh, views was to 2016 what Purple Rain was to 1984. It was the album that dominated the charts for weeks and weeks on end and was basically the, the, the album that was dominating the cultural conversation. Now, here was my point. 1984 is an interesting year for the album chart because I think only five albums went to number one the whole year. Uh, Thriller at the beginning of the year was in the final of, of its epic run at number one. Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. For one week, uh, Huey Lewis and the News is Sports. Sure. For about 10 weeks, the Footloose soundtrack. And then for 24 weeks, Prince's Purple Rain. Now, there are two ways to view the, the fact that there were only five number one albums in 1984. Either, wow, those are some albums I absolutely remember. I just ticked those five albums off. Tell me if you were alive in 1984. Even Huey Lewis and the News of Sports, sure. even the Footloose soundtrack, you absolutely knew those were culturally dominant albums. On the other hand, knowing what we now know about the way the charts work and about data and about what happened after SoundScan, that's total bullshit. There, there would have been at least a dozen more number one albums during that year. Uh, everything from the new Rush album to an Alabama album to the Cars Heartbeat City would have been number one albums or the Pretenders Learning to Crawl. Have people tried to go back and create these things? I did this. So as a thought exercise, and I caveated it up the yin-yang, I said, this is purely speculative. But based on the way these albums rose and fall on the charts and knowing what I kind of innately know about how the charts work now, I I would guess (laughs) that the following 12 albums probably would have been number one albums in 1984 if SoundScan had existed in 1984. Now, here's where I got pushback. Here, the reason I was saying, what I was saying was, you can either view this as a miscarriage of justice, or you can say, but in the larger sense, those were the five biggest albums of 1984, and it's fine. 
now what people are saying is the charts, the album chart is BS because streaming factors into it. And so the big reason that Drake was number one so many weeks with people views. People listen to a few singles over and over again. Correct. And people say, well, isn't that BS? The chart is corrupt. Well, the chart was also corrupt in 1984, but can we really not argue much the way we argued in 1984? The biggest album in America is clearly Purple Rain. Right. Can't we argue in 2016 that the biggest album in America is clearly views by Drake? Like, would it be better if for one week the Paul Simon record were number one or for one week the Blake Shelton record were number one? Yeah, that would mean more artists had a chance at number one. Whatever the heck that means. Whatever the heck that means. But Paul Simon's not the biggest artist of 2016. Right. Blake Shelton, he's pretty big in country, but he's not the biggest artist. The biggest artist of 2016 is Drake. Drake's views deserves to be number one for 14 weeks or whatever, 13 weeks, however long it was number one, much the way Purple Rain deserved to be number one for 24 weeks because it was dominating the cultural conversation. So the charts were corrupt back then, but they did reflect something, you know? And right, do you think that then if, if you had to choose a year at which the charts are, are as accurately reflective of society's love of, you know, listening to music, is today correct, most correct? Is 1985 correct? Is 1995 most correct? You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. I mean, the charts are always imperfect. Um, but any system, whether it's how the, you know, an award show works, think about the debate we've been having about the Oscars and, you know, sure. Oscars so white and this yeah. new popular Oscar they're about to institute, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, baseball and its rules. Sure. Any system has imperfect rules. Um, and the object of the game is to simply understand those rules and factor them in and not to say that, you know, because the rules have been changed, this system is bullshit. Yeah. Um, all systems are bullshit. The, the fact that we have a president sitting in the White House who didn't actually win the popular vote, right, but sure. won this arcane system called the Electoral College is kind of bullshit. But yep. we all played along because we agreed. These are the rules. The guy won the Electoral College. Ergo, this, this man is president. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to understand how the system works. You have to dissect how the system works, but it doesn't make the system fundamentally bankrupt, I guess. Yeah. And I'm, I realize I'm saying that having just said that Donald Trump is the president, yeah. <laughs> but you know, am I happy that Donald Trump's the president? No. Can I explain how Donald Trump became the president? Yes. Uh, all right. I'm going to put you on the spot. Sure. Are you ready? I, I, I'm going to ask you for two top fives. Oh boy. Okay. Okay. Top five. Most influential albums that weren't big hits. Oh, that's interesting. You have to give me a minute on that. Influential albums that weren't big hits. I know that's a tough one. Right. All right. I'll tell you what the other one is. So you can maybe you can, you can answer the first question last. Sure. Last question sure. First. Sure. Top five albums of, of all time and importance of culture. Mm, wow. Those I know both, they're both huge questions. They're huge. Yeah. Wow. I just want to see where you come out on them. If you come out in a very different place than say I would or, or someone else, cause you have a, you have a much, you have a very broad view. You wear wide angle glasses, right? I mean, you'd have to, in terms of things that are not big hits, but are influential. And what happens is some of these, these albums sell over a long period of time. Yeah, become so, a big hit. In so the, for example, in the macro ne never mind the bollocks. Here's the sex pistols is sure. now a platinum album, but it got to platinum over the course of 20 years. And it, yep. I don't think it even charted, or if it did, I think it charted in the, the one hundreds on the billboard sure. 200 in the, yep. in the seventies. Right. Yep. But deeply, deeply influential. Right. Yeah. Um, I just did an episode about REM and the B 52s yep. and I talked about alternative rock and, the New York Dolls debut album influenced uh, the B-52s, um, but didn't chart very well. Yeah. Um, the Velvet Underground and Nico famously did not chart very well, but yeah. is 
deeply influential. Um, Interesting. All of those are in a very particular period of time. In a, right, right. Mid-70s to early 80s. Right. Uh, to pick something from the 21st century that has quietly gone platinum but took a long time to do it, um, uh, the Postal Service album, Give Up, oh, okay. has been, I would say, influential because it 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 presaged some of the the move toward more synthy pop and even hip hop that we've seen. Um, is it your, your REM B 52s episodes were interesting to me mm -hmm. because while I understand your parallels between them, I do not put REM and B 52s on the same level of importance in music. I mean, the, without question, REM were a much Take away love shack and Rome and would most people, and maybe rock, you know, lobster. you'd have to take away rock lobster too. Yeah. Cause rock lobster is, but, is but, a huge you know, record. But and Rock Lobster is not even a top forty hit, but it's but it's an yeah, yeah, it's yeah. an influential record, right? Yeah. It's, it's, There's a good example. That's an influential record more than it was a a right. big hit. You also asked about albums. This is almost easier to do with singles, right? Okay, because you know, Once in a Lifetime by the Talking Heads never made the Hot 100, but it's you know, huge, I would, yeah, a, a hugely half the music of the next decade sounded like that, at right? Some level, right? Um, you know early hip hop, you know, the, there were, you know, Rapper's Delight actually scraped the top 40. So in a way, if you look at the glasses half full, the fact that Rapper's Delight made the top 40 is kind of impressive considering rap is yeah. itself new as a recorded medium. Um, you know, it's fun actually, and this is a whole other thing I won't get into, but I just want to scrape it as you just said. Just looking at, say, the beginnings of hip hop, because it's a relatively new genre. Right. We were all alive when that happened. You yeah, know, yeah. Well, you know. And even the mythologies of, of, of what was the first rap record, you know, you could go back and say, oh, was, you know, uh, uh, what's the, what's the Ike Turner tune? Uh, oh, um, uh, Rocket 88 is yeah. the first rock and roll right. song. Right. A lot of people consider it. Right. A lot of but people there's debate over that, right? Right. Like, there's, there's half a dozen other songs that people could point to and say, totally. These could also be. Right. But a lot of people point to, there's another, but that's, you know, late forties or whatever it is, mm -hmm. the early fifties. Right. The same thing in the late 70s, people say, well, Rapper's Light was the first, you know, uh, hip hop rock, rap record that became anything that people knew. You know what I mean? That was on the radio. Right, and but on my, sold def, if, my Def Jam's episode of Hit Parade, I talked about an earlier record called Personality Jock. Yeah. Uh, what was it? King T the Third Personality yep. Yep. Jock, which- There's which, another example. For all intents and purposes, in the was, middle a rap, rapping, was a rap yeah. record, but because it was by a funk group that yeah. was basically dabbling in rap. Yep. You know- yeah, it's it, like we were there for the mythologization of that genre. Because these things are not always demarcatable with a bright temporal sure. line. Yeah, you know? Hist history's written by the winners, and somehow somebody decided that that was the winner. It's written by the winners, and it's win written with twenty twenty hindsight, right? Because you 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 see that "Rock Around the Clock" by Bill Haley and his Comets is the first rock and roll record that catches on and tops the charts. Ergo, you say the rock era begins there, but then. But then what about Rocket 88? What yep. about, you know, any number of Chuck Berry records? Yep. You know, Rocket 88 is a good tune. It, it is. It's a great tune. Yeah. What about Big Mama Thornton? Yeah. Um, what about Sister Rosetta Tharp? I mean, there are some who argue that, you know, she was effectively doing rock and roll yeah. before rock and roll. Um, all right. Well, why don't we say this? Why don't we say your top five favorite albums of all time? Wow. That depends on the day. 
And it's like, and do I exclude Beatles albums? Because here's the thing, here's the way in which I'm born. You can choose one Beatles Here's record. the way in which I'm born. You're a Beatles I, fan. I, I, I know, I'm a huge Beatles fan. Yeah. The, the Beatles are a touchstone for chart nerds because they both had critical acclaim and chart dominance. Yeah. And, and they have they hold a Hot 100 record. That's, they hold several, but they, they hold one that still hasn't been topped, which is most number one hits. They had 20 number one hits. Mariah came very, very close. She got to 18 number one hits. And unless some fluke happens in the next couple of years, maybe they'll find a rule bear what, whereby all I want for Christmas is you is allowed to chart and goes all the way back to number one. I don't see how Mariah is actually going to get those last two hits to tie or three to beat the Beatles. Um, the one, frankly, who stands the best shot at beating them if she keeps recording is Rihanna because she's quite young and she already has 14 number one hits. You, uh, she's 14 number one four, hits? I wrote about this when she got the 14th uh, God, that work. seems in- – as somebody it's who crazy, doesn't listen right? to the radio, that seems insane to me. 14 number one hits. And Where's Beyonce at now? Th- that's what everybody assumes is that Beyonce must have a lot. Beyonce has with, – if you clu- include Destiny's Child, I think she only has six or seven. But those record – her albums do very well. Her albums do very well, yes. Um – God, favorite albums. I mean, so like picking the one Beatles album is hard. It's it, for me. It's even either, within the Beatles, it's hard for you to choose. Even within the Beatles, it's hard for me to choose. It's it's either I feel very close to Rubber Soul, but then if I'm being honest, I've played Sgt. Pepper more than any Beatles album, and I know that's a boring answer, but I have a very personal relationship with Sgt. Pepper. Sgt. Pepper was the first non-Kitty, non-Sesame Street album that I loved as a kid. Can, can can we can we agree that Rubber Soul, Revolver, Sgt. Pepper, and the White Album are the four contenders for the top? Yes, except I'm weird in that I actually love Revolver, but think it's a tiny bit overrated. This new this new belief that Revolver is the greatest album of all time and beats Sgt. Pepper is is a is a mythology I have not fully bought into. I don't necessarily buy into that, but I do like Revolver as a record. Revolver, I like to, like to be. It's got Tomorrow Never Knows for crying out loud. Yes, yeah. it's, it's got you know. I yeah. mean, it's it's such a phenomenal. It's got here, there, and everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's so good. Would you end up choosing though, like if, if if I really put you on the spot and let you think about it, do you think you would end up with a record from seventies, couple from the or couple mm-hmm. from the seventies, couple from the eighties? Would you end up choosing anything from the nineties or two thousands? Yes. Um, LCD. Yes, I love Sound of Silver. I've played that record more than uh, most records. Would it make my top five? That's a stretch, but yes, for the sake of. I don't know, variety, I would include it. Just be, And I have legitimately played that record dozens and dozens of times. Um, you know, in the 80s, uh, if I have to pick one Prince album, I'm probably picking Sign of the Times. Um, Never take the place of your man on that record? Yes. I love that song. So I think good. that's one of the best songs. And believe it or not, it was the fourth single. Like, picture a record where you, you go to a record, a single that good, and it's the fourth single. It, it, you know what's crazy about that tune? Like, there's a there's a live acoustic thing of Prince playing on, like, VH1 or whatever it is, which everyone was passing around right after right, he died. Right, Where he kind of, he plays a chorus and a verse of that tune, just him and an acoustic guitar singing. Right. And it's even better him just singing with an acoustic guitar than it is with the huge production behind it. Yeah. I'm a sucker for a person with an instrument playing a tune. Like Mm -hmm. almost always that's better to me than the fully produced thing because it's sort of the way you and I differ because I'm, I'm, I'm as a chart nerd and as a critic, I'm obsessed with the totality of a recording. Yeah. That fascinates me. And why, why a record like I want you back sounds so amazing to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, God, a top five. Dusty (laughs) and Memphis would probably make my top five. I love. I've I've played Dusty and Memphis more than most albums. Again, but this changes day to day. Uh, 
It's just, it feels like it's a cloud of music around you that you grab at it in particular time. Right. Like, the like I wrote a book about Kurt Cobain, um, a short book for Barnes & Noble Publishing. This It's a fluke in my uh, my history that I wrote a book about Kurt Cobain. Would you put Nevermind on that? Uh, and, and Nevermind is an album I genuinely love. The thing about Nevermind, it's like Sgt. Pepper, There's right? an influential record. It's an influential record, and people roll their eyes, oh, what an obvious pick, Nevermind. By, you know? But I was there when it happened, when the, the, this improbable thing happened. I don't think people fully appreciate how improbable it was that a band that sounded like that would sell that well. Yeah. There's a reason why they call that documentary 1991, The Year Punk Broke. Yep. It's and it's funny because I I basically I I once wrote <laughs> I somehow I stuck it in an article about Bruno Mars but I basically said that Bruno Mars hit with Mark Ronson Uptown Funk sure. was to early eighties R and B what Smells Like Teen Spirit was to punk yep. uh, in the sense that it popularized a sound that everybody assumed had scored many many hits but actually had not scored that many hits like uh, turn of the eighties R and B because of the disco backlash you know Rick James for example never had a top ten pop hit. Yep. You know, and so all the artists like the Gap Band that Uptown Funk is imitating, they're imitating a sound that actually the first time around in 80, 81, 82 did not do well on the white pop charts. It sure. did very well on the R&B charts, but it did not do well on the pop charts because radio was undergoing a massive backlash against anything that sounded too black in 1980 and 81. Yep. Um, and so the records that Uptown Funk is trying to sound like. Uptown Funk was this enormous, like, 14, 15-week number one hit, but it was actually a bigger hit than any of the records it, it, it sounded like. And I compared it to Smells Like Teen Spirit, and I said it was what Smells Like Teen Spirit is to punk. And I got a bunch of snotty people in the comments. They tell you never read the article, never read the comments on your no. articles. So this yeah, one time, for some reason, I read the comments. <laughs> I can't remember why. I, I mostly avoid the comments on my articles, but I read the comments. People say, who's this, this asshole who says that Smells Like Teen Spirit is punk? Because people didn't want to accept that Smells Like Teen Spirit had something to do with a movement that they considered having sacred. to do with sacred and dating back to the 70s. Sure. And it's like, no, of course Smells Like Teen Spirit is punk. And that's what made Smells Like Teen Spirit so – it wasn't punk the way the Ramones defined it. And there's a reason why we call it grunge now because it was a particular type of punk. But Kurt Cobain lived and died for the punk ethos. That was why you know he was into what he was into. It's why he was into Scratch Acid and, and – you know. Everything from the raincoats to you know Melvins. I mean that yeah. that was that was his scene. Uh, what's the other record? Bleach is that the one that they Bleach re- was the first one. Yeah, yeah, but the, yeah, that they the, released the afterwards. Record. Yeah. Well, it was no Bleach was actually out in 1989, yeah, yeah. but it sold. It, it's now double or triple platinum because it went back and people bought, sure. went back and bought it. Um, but that has a much more punk kind of sound to me than than Nevermind did. Right, absolutely. Um, much more indie sound. Much more raw, yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, Nevermind was such a big record that Kurt Cobain kind of distanced himself from it and hired Steve Albini to record um, In Utero because he claimed that he didn't want to sound, quote, candy ass the way the final version of the Butch Vig produced sure. Andy Wallace mixed Nevermind sounded. Andy Wallace is a hell of a mix engineer. Yeah, though. he really is. Andy Wallace is the secret reason. Not even Butch Vig as great as Butch Vig is. Andy Wallace is the reason Nevermind sounds the way it does. Yep. So, but I was there. I have a closeness to Nevermind like I have with Sgt. Pepper where, yes, it's a very obvious record. But watching this subculture that I was into sort of in the periphery of my vision as a pop fan suddenly become the center of pop. Yeah. It was a very exciting thing. I literally remember where I was when I discovered that Nevermind was the number one album in America. I was, it was like the last day of my Christmas vacation 
my junior year of college, 1991 into 92. So it was like, I don't know, January 6th or something like that. It's cold. You're in New Haven. I, I know. It's cold and I'm in New York about to go back to New Haven. Okay. And my parents were going to drop me off at Grand Central, but they, they let me swing through Tower Records and pick up Billboard. And I open up Billboard and Nevermind has knocked out Michael Jackson's Dangerous. And literally my hands were shaking. I was like in shock because it was already stunning that the album had made the top 10, but you could begin to think that was a fluke. But then when it was the number one album in America, and it was number one because of, of Christmas, basically like what happened was A billion was that, people bought it for somebody. No, quite the opposite all these kids had been given gift cards or they'd been given a Michael Jackson album or something that was less scary. And they all took their money and they marched to the record store and bought the album. Their parents were not going to buy them, which was Nevermind. Interesting. That's why Nevermind was the number one. Nevermind is a good example of uh, arguably the best example in the last few decades of this is a tectonic shift in the music industry. It really was. And this is a stake in the ground that you can say, nope, it's never mind. That was the record that, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff leading up to lots of stuff after it, but like it's, it's, there's a, this is a, a, a you know, a, a BCAD kind of thing. Like you it were really saying is. with SoundScan. It really is. Interestingly and enough, right around the time that SoundScan had SoundScan happened. had started only about six months before. Yeah. And, and, and I said to you, I remember the first time you and I spent time together, I was like, I was a big fan of jellyfish. That jellyfish spilt milk record is a great record. Came out, a year too late mm-hmm. because it came out just as the grunge world was taking off and no one wanted to listen to power pop stuff. Right. You know, right. It's, it's how much timing has to do with all of this stuff and success in, in music. Yeah. No, it's all, it's always about timing. I mean, and that's, that is a factor in, you know, a lot of my writing is, you know, timing as, as a, as a component of why things become hits. Yeah. Sometimes people are not ready for us and they weren't, you know, why did the Gap Band and Rick James not score hits in 1981, but Bruno Mars did in 2015? Timing. I mean, people yeah. were ready to hear this. Yeah. Um, so have I given you five albums? I think I did. And and I may recant all five of them, but like Sgt. <laughs> Pepper, Dusty in Memphis, yeah. LCD Sound System, Sound of Silver, yeah. Nevermind by Nirvana, and uh, Sign of the Times. Oh, Sign of the Times, yeah. yeah but I could, swap, I could swap in the low-end theory by A Tribe Called Quest, I could swap in Substance by New Order, which is a greatest hits album that's a bit of a cheat, but I've sure. listened to Substance more than any any synth pop record. Um I, I know that backwards, forwards, and upside down. What's the can you can you give us a preview of the next uh hit parade episode? Yeah, I actually um I I've, I'm previewing it more ways than one because we just recorded an episode of these interstitial episodes we do called Hit Parade the Bridge, yep. where I, I give a little sneak preview of what we're working on. The next episode's gonna be about the Bee Gees. Oh. Um, oh, I can't wait for that one. Yeah, be, who I just consider fascinating yep. because they are so much bigger than the disco moment they're Barry's most famous a hell for. Of a songwriter. And Barry's a hell of a songwriter. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. All right, so people can find Hit Parade anywhere podcasts are sold. Yes, all of your podcatchers. They, they, they can read uh, Why, is this, uh, Why is This Song Number One at Slate. At mm-hmm. Slate. And you're on Twitter? I'm on Twitter at Seamalanfi. Okay. Yeah. Any, any, anything else you want to plug? Plug? Uh, no, that's that's. Do you feel like we covered enough? I feel like we covered the water. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, this was great. Um, yeah. No, and this kind of big think philosophical stuff is is at the root of what I do. So it's it's fun to to talk about. Yeah. Good. Thank you so much for coming by. Thank you. Uh,